everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. Nice to have you with us today. We begin our program with two different studies on the same item. One is from the Omdurman Islamic University in Sudan. The other is from the Jazan University in Saudi Arabia. In that part of the world, they use what is called Spanish tamarind. Now, I'm sure at some point in your life you've come across tamarind, tamarind jellies. That's normally where it's used. But it's been used in that part of the world for centuries. Why? It has all these different medical applications. Why is that? Because it's rich in two items, phenolic, P-H-E-N-O-L-I-C, and flavonoid elements. And according to an article in the Australian Journal of Basic and Applied Sciences, it has a wide spectrum of things it can do in the body, but let's just highlight one. One of the things it can do, that's the Spanish tamarind, it's the leaf, the bark, and the seed. Uh, with They have 80% uh, methanol to produce a extract of each plant, and then it, you take the extract. You don't go eat the plant. You can eat the plant. It's very healthy. Uh, you don't eat the seed. You can eat the inner soft gel. And I have some right now. I feed it to the animals. But why should you be interested? Because it can inhibit the growth of cancer cells, of all kinds of cancer cells. So just one more way we can protect ourselves. When I look at the actual study, I found, wow, it possesses a lot of what is called gallic acid and uh, also a hydrooxybenzoic, uh, uh, chlorogenic, all these uh, ferulic and uh, p-cormeric acids. These are a bunch of acids. But remember, every plant from blueberries to green leafy vegetables have from dozens to hundreds of different natural compounds. And that's what gives them their healing ability. A study from the University of Nottingham, which is the United Kingdom, shows that pumpkins can ward off diabetes. Yes, there's the pulp of the pumpkin, they're the oil of the ungerminated seeds, and the protein of germinated seeds have hypoglycemic properties, meaning hypoglycemic lowered blood sugar. And they're very biologically active, the polysaccharides, the paraminobenzoic acid, the steroids, the peptides, all of the things you find when you have pumpkin. And uh, by the way, pumpkin can't, uh, can't be found just at Halloween. It can be found all year round. It's just people don't eat a lot of, in the United States, we don't eat a lot of squashes. Spaghetti squash or Hubbard squash, acorn squash. There are dozens of different squashes. These are really, really rich in nutrients, and they help lower blood sugar and maintain insulin levels, which helps treat diabetes. Also, in the University of Vermont, getting outside in the wintertime really helps you with, if you have this, the standard SAD, meaning seasonal affective disorder. Sunlight, one of the best treatments. So get some sun. And also, according to the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, an article published in the current Complementary Therapies in Medicine, a vegan diet can help prevent hot flashes in menopause. So that's good. By the way, it was 25 years ago that 500 listeners joined me for one year, meeting every week for four hours to go over everything we can do with 
lifestyle and behavior modification, and we had a 94% success rate of reversing menopausal symptoms, like thinning the eyebrows, and suddenly people at the end of the study had normal hair that they had had when they were younger, normal color in the hair, so they didn't have to dye their hair. Their eyebrows thickened out where they'd been thin. Their skin tightened up. Their muscles um, improved. Their strength, energy, their sleep improved. They lost weight. Their moods improved in hot flashes, night sweats gone. And that was on a vegan diet and exercise. Yeah. I presented that down in Washington, D.C. to 7,000 scientists, scientific conference. Also, I recently read um, on the internet that some person who was involved in a uh, health movement said that, well, endometriosis doesn't exist. <laughs> yes, it does. It's a major problem for women. To say it doesn't exist, and I won't go into the politics of this person's, why they said this as a trans person, and uh, they were brought in, and my God, I mean, I respect whatever you want to call yourself. That's fine. Your life, your choice, that's your, that's your business. I support that. But when you try to deny biology and you say it doesn't exist, it does exist. Just ask the latest study just out from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. Endometrius risk is linked to two pesticides, and these two pesticides affect about 10% of reproductive age women because people don't look at the can of the ingredients when they buy pesticides around their house or even in their apartment. They spray it down for roaches and things. You should look. Always look at what's on a, in a product and then go up on the physician's desk reference if it's a drug or look on the Environmental Health Perspective, which is a publication. It's a journal of the National Institute's of Environmental Health Sciences, which is a part of the National Institutes of Health, and it'll tell you that how toxic something is. And we're talking about something like Mirax, M-I-R-A-X, that had a seventy up to seventy percent increase in endometrious risk when people used it. So stay away from all of these organo uh, pesticides. The organochlorine pesticides are really dangerous. Now to the question of endometriosis. The reality, the actual biology is simple, and I've helped thousands of women with endometriosis. It's a non-cancerous condition that occurs when the tissue that lines the inside of the uterus or the womb grows outside of the organ and attaches to other structures or organs. It most often affects the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, and the lining of the pelvic cavity. The most common symptoms are excruciating chronic pelvic pain, painful menstrual periods and irregular periods, and infertility. So, it's real, it's bad, it can be treated, but start by preventing it. Also from Harvard School of Public Health, guess what? Prescription drug use is skyrocketing. Why? And I'm not going to answer this, but I'm going to ask you to give your thoughts on this for our talkback section today. We are having more young people use drugs of all kinds. I'm not talking about illicit drugs now, like fentanyl, cocaine, crack, the zombie drugs. I'm talking about prescription medication. 
the doctor has to see that you need it, a pharmacist has to fulfill it, and you take it. But then, more often than not, you take these forever. These are forever medicines. And then, do we ever call, let's say, a center and ask for, what is the biology of this? Or do we get a copy of the physician's desk reference? So you can go up online and look and type in the drug that you've been given and just look at the side effects. What is contraindicated? Or is there any food that I shouldn't have? For example, if I'm given warfarin or a blood thinning medication because I, I might have had a stroke or heart attack, okay. Is there anything natural that I could do that would thin my blood? Or if I'm taking this drug, do I have to stop taking vitamin C and vitamin E and green juices, celery, cucumber? Do I have to stop eating those foods because it could over-affect the thinning of my blood? So if then I did have a cut or something, I wouldn't clot. We never, I mean never, ask ourselves these questions until one day, Mom or grandmom's on 15 different medications, half of which are there to counteract the effects of the other drugs. Why can't anyone just stop and take people off these drugs in a meaningful and proper medical way? Why? Why is it that virtually every commercial on television, I mean every commercial on television, which is the number one type of commercials on television, that and then food and alcohol beverage, all of which produce disease, why is it that they, when they're saying something real fast, if notice the talk goes very fast, look at this person, look at them smiling, look at them walking through a field of lavender with their hands out and flowing, and they're, they're at ease because they no longer have, they no longer have that wheeziness in their throat, or their nose is no longer stopped up, they no longer have that allergy. Side effects may be a heart attack, stroke, death, or a coma for life. Now, wouldn't you like to be in that lavender field? Look at how they manufacture the consent of saying, yeah, I, I better take that instead of changing my lifestyle, improving my diet, cleansing myself from toxins. Nothing on prevention. Nothing on alternative ways of dealing with it. Only one way. Your, your answer is please. Why are we a nation of addicts, and I mean we are a drop-dead, hardcore nation of addicts and an attitude from hell to support continuing it. Why? I'd like to hear from you. Our number is 888-874-4888. 888-874-4888. Why don't we get off drugs? Why don't we look at preventing anything at any level in our society? We don't prevent anything. We don't prevent environmental disasters. I'm an environmentalist, Gary. I, I, you know, I've got a picture of, well, I had a picture of Chase Guevara until I heard that he you know, killed people and was a racist, hated black. But anyhow, I took down that poster, and, uh, and now I'm enlightened because I put uh, Greta up there. Mm, did you give up all the plastic things? No, of course not. Did you plant a tree? Who can plant a tree? I don't know how to plant a tree. I don't know how to brush my teeth. I have to go up on Google and then look at Facebook of other people brushing their teeth before I know how to do it. I'm kind of helpless and an idiot. That's fine. So when are you going to actually prevent something? We're a society that doesn't prevent anything. We don't prevent drugs that kill people. We don't prevent excessive 
prescriptions, over medication. We don't prevent people from spending money they don't have on debt they can't afford. Look at our war on crime, our war on terror, our war on poverty. Gee whiz. Why don't we have a war on bureaucracies and bureaucrats? But that's another story. So just look at the mess we're in and ask yourself, when was the last time any governmental agency, Surgeon General, any network says, hold on, before you buy this product, understand we're advertising because that's our income. And we have to set aside all ethics in doing this. But here's what you could do if you went to the National Library of Medicine and Googled for the cold, runny nose, your arthritis pain, your menopausal symptoms. Google that and treatments and look at the natural treatments that could help you. We've never done that and nobody would advocate it. Why? Back in a moment, hopefully with your responses. And welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. Right now, Hillary Clinton is running all around the world and putting forth, pontificating on, primarily saying this. Hey, look, this is all on Hamas and the Palestinian people. They've had multiple opportunities, including under my pre husband, who was president back in 1990, to have the, the, uh, the opportunity to have their own country their own area, exclusively for them, and they turned it down repeatedly. So here's what it is. They're just nodding their head in agreement. Yeah, so it's all the fault of the Palestinians. No one else. Yeah, Hillary's there. Hillary says it. Let's go to this clip, because here's someone that I would put this person against any person in the United States or the world when it comes to telling the truth, because he is the ultimate scholar, Norman Finkelstein. We've had him on the program. And he dismantles Hillary Clinton's Israeli spin. And if you understand how they've been lying, then the next time the New York Times or the Washington Post or Rachel Maddow make a statement that is completely wrong, you'll know the truth. Let's go to the clip. You mentioned a little while ago that our former Secretary of State and former First Lady Hillary Clinton has been making the rounds, laying out her argument for why she is opposed to a ceasefire, even after all of the many civilians um, who have been killed by Israel in this conflict. Um, she laid out her uh, argument in an Atlantic piece. She said that ceasefires freeze conflicts rather than resolve them. In 2012, freezing the conflict in Gaza was an outcome that we and the Israelis were willing to accept. But Israel's policy since 2009 of containing rather than destroying Hamas has failed. A ceasefire now that restored the pre-October 7th status quo would leave the people of Gaza living in a besieged enclave under the domination of terrorists and leave Israelis vulnerable to continued attacks. It would also consign hundreds of hostages to continued captivity. She also made an appearance on The View where she uh, bolstered this argument with her version of some of the recent history. Let's take a listen to a little bit of what she said there. The problem predates October 7th, and I right. think that's what President Obama was talking about, because let's remember, this is a very long and complicated history. Yes. Mm -hmm. My husband, with the Israeli government at the time in 2000, offered a Palestinian state to the Palestinians at that time uh, run by Arafat, Yasser Arafat, and the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. 
which, by the way, took out of its charter violence against Israel. Mm -hmm. So you've got to separate the Palestinians who believe that there is some future of peace with Hamas, which believes it has to destroy Israel. Yeah. Those are two different separate, yes. organizations, right. and they have to be viewed in that way. Arafat turned that down. There would have been a Palestinian state now for 23 years if he had not walked away from it. There was another attempt when I was Secretary of State to try to, you know, bring the Palestinians and the Israelis together. That didn't work out. Hamas came in and basically destroyed all of that and killed a lot of other Palestinians. So I think when President Obama says that, it requires us to look at the history. And of course, history holds all of us accountable. So what is your view except, of how she... Except Hillary Clinton, who destroyed Libya. History holds all of us accountable, except Hillary Clinton. But let's leave that aside. What I would like you to do, Crystal, is simply ask me one specific question from that. She made many, many statements. She talked about 2000, when her right. husband presided over the... Uh, a, attempted peace agreement. She talked about Hamas, how Hamas destroyed everything. She talked about ceasefires don't exist. Uh, you would not have time for another question if I were to go into all of that. So you use your, you know, you use your intelligence. You're very smart. Which aspect do you find most um, uh, challenging? And then I'll try to answer it uh, going through the details. Well, one of the uh, claims that she made there, which I hear repeated often, is that uh, it was on the Palestinian side that peace has been rejected. And she says there that Palestinians could have had a state now for 23 years had Yasser Arafat not walked away from the deal that uh, her husband was attempting to craft. So do you agree with that assessment? What does she get wrong there? Well, she gets everything wrong, and I'm going to try to explain why. I do know the details, and you'll, I hope the listeners will forgive me for going into the details. There have been four basic issues to try to resolve this conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, okay? Issue is, number one, borders. Where should the borderline be drawn between Israel and the Palestinians? The Palestinians accepted the position of the international community. The borderline should be drawn where it was before the June 1967 war. That is, the whole of the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza, would form an independent Palestinian state alongside Israel. The Palestinians accepted the position of the international community, all the legal bodies in the world, the International Court of Justice, all the political bodies, the UN General Assembly, everybody accepted the border should be what's called the pre-June 1967 border or the whole of the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, and Gaza would be the Palestinian state side by side with Israel. Israel rejected that position. Israel wanted a part of the West Bank. 
in its last offer, in its last offer, it wanted approximately 8% of the West Bank. So it rejected the international community's position. Number two, under international law, East Jerusalem belonged to the Palestinian state because under international law, it's inadmissible to acquire territory by war. Israel acquired the East, East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and Gaza in the course of the 1967 war. It had no legal title to East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and Gaza. Israel rejected that position of the international community. It said it wanted parts of East Jerusalem. Number three, there's the question of the settlements that Israel has built in the occupied Palestinian territories. Approximately now 700,000 settlers, illegal settlers under international law in the West Bank. All of those settlers are illegally in the West Bank. Right now, as we speak, engaging in a low level, at this point, ethnic cleansing in the West Bank. Israel wanted to keep under its sovereignty approximately 80% of those settlers. And finally, there's the question of the Palestinian refugees and their descendants under their descendants since 1948. Israel said that it would not allow any of those uh, refugees to return under what's called the right of return, uh, the, the international law, which says uh, refugees have the right to return to their homes after the cessation of hostilities. Israel said no. Now, on all of those questions, borders, Jerusalem, settlements, refugees, on all of those questions, the Palestinians were willing to make concessions. And in, in, 2000, in the year 2000, President Clinton put forth what were called the parameters, December 2000, parameters for resolving the conflict. All of those parameters required concessions from the Palestinians on the basis of international law. None of Clinton's parameters required concessions from Israel on the basis of international law. Now, I want the listeners to hear the bottom line. In January 2001, both the Israeli side and the Palestinian side accepted what were called the Clinton parameters with reservations. Both sides said, we accept with reservations. It is factually 
untrue President Clinton, who's an extremely smart guy, extremely smart guy with a voracious intellectual appetite, he's unfortunately also an exceptional liar. And in his memoir, which I read, he simply lied about what happened to his parameters that he put forth in December 2000. And Hillary Clinton, who is apparently quite smart also, as smart as her husband, I'm not sure, but no question, a very smart woman, she is also an inveterate to the point of pathological liar. That's not, you know, I'm not talking, I'm not trying to be, um, I'm not trying to be uh, uh, ad hominem. I think there's quite a lot of evidence going back to why she lost the election that she's a pathological liar. She literally can't see the lies that she's uh, uttering. So those are just factual questions where I can say with a great deal of confidence, because I've read the entire diplomatic record, and I'm willing to debate anybody on it, that what she's saying is false. It's doubly false. It's false because the Palestinians accepted the terms for resolving the conflict, which have been developed and ratified by the whole international community. Just to give you one example, every year, every single year, the United Nations General Assembly passes a resolution called Peaceful Settlement of the Palestine Question. And every year, it lays out the terms which I just described. The terms of the settlement are anchored, embedded in international law. Every year, the vote is the whole world, which is to say approximately 190 countries on one side embracing those terms, including the Palestinian representative organizations. And on the other side, it's usually the United States, Israel, and several South Sea islands, the Marshall Islands, Palau, Tuvalu, Tonga, on the other side. Now, if any of your listeners have doubts, which surely they have the right to, all they have to do is Google peaceful settlement of the Palestine question, United Nations General Assembly. And that resolution will come right up on the screen. It's a little more complicated to get to the voting record, but with enough uh, conscientiousness and ingenuity, which I lack on the web, I don't know anything about computers, mm -hmm. um, they can easily find. The whole world 
on one side, the U.S., Israel, and some South Sea Island atolls on the other side. That's the real record. And if Hillary Clinton wants to debate me on it, or her husband, I'm perfectly happy to do so. Well, and I would be perfectly happy to moderate that debate. I think that would be great for the country to see. This here is the World Economic Forum's annual meeting that's currently being held in the city of Davos, Switzerland. You know Switzerland, the country that is 95% ethnically homogenous, the country with strict immigration laws, the country with one of the highest gun ownership rates in the entire world, and the country that has refused to join almost all of these different global alliances like the EU and NATO. That's the country that global elites decide to go to every year in order to discuss their global agenda, which typically involves making sure that the other countries in the world are nothing like Switzerland. Furthermore, according to On the Ground reporting, there are currently plenty of private jets, there are giant cavalcades of large black vehicles, as well as approximately 5,000 taxpayer-funded Swiss members of the military guarding the event. The same event, I should add, that has at least historically pushed the agenda of reducing common citizens, meaning your mind, carbon footprint, as well as opening up the national border. Again, I'm sure the irony is not lost on anyone here. Regardless, one of the main attractions of the World Economic Forum's annual meeting is that it's an event where global elites tend to say the quiet part out loud. They tend to give the game away just a little bit. That is, for instance, exactly what happened back in the year 2018 when the CEO of Pfizer, well, he dazzled the audience of that year's World Economic Forum by telling them about the possibility of ingestible computer chips that one would take in the form of a tablet that would then signal to the authorities when a drug has been digested. Take a listen. It is a basically biological chip that it is in the tablet. And once you take the tablet and dissolves into your stomach, sends a signal that you took the tablet. So imagine the applications of that, the compliance, uh, the insurance companies to know that the medicines that patients should take, they do take them. Uh, it is uh, fascinating what happens in, in uh, this field. Imagine the compliance indeed. Now again, that clip was from the year 2018, and the CEO of Pfizer, he was specifically talking about schizophrenia and cancer medications. However, seen through the light of the past four years, meaning seen through the lens of COVID and all the associated mandates, well, is what he said really outside the realm of possibility? Now, you might say that, of course, it's outside the realm of possibility, given the fact that COVID is now over, at least the pandemic is no longer a hot-button issue, and the FDA even recently came out and said that we should treat COVID much like we treat the flu. However, there are currently two factors worth considering. The first is the possibility of future pandemics. For instance, right now, apparently, there is a monkeypox outbreak spreading around the world. In fact, according to a recent statement that was put out by the CDC, there are currently 11 countries with confirmed cases, including the U.S. And just for your reference, if you've never heard of it before, monkeypox is a relatively rare viral infection that originates in the tropical areas of West and Central Africa. And it's generally transmitted by very close contact with an already infected person, including through sex. Symptoms are usually mild, and they include things like fever, headache, muscle and back aches, swollen lymph nodes, chills, exhaustion, and of course, the iconic monkeypox lesions. And as you can see the chart up on screen for yourself, and this chart, by the way, is actually updated. It has 16 countries on it, and it shows the breakdown of those countries that monkeypox cases have been confirmed in. And as you can see, at the very top of the chart, you have Spain, 
Portugal, as well as the UK, which have the largest number of confirmed cases. And in regards to the UK, well, the WHO has already come out and they declared the current level of spread as an official emergency. Now, Dr. Suzanne Hopkins, who is a chief medical advisor to the UK Health Security Agency, she recently told the Daily Mail what they're actually seeing on the ground in Britain. Here's specifically what she said in the statement, quote, We are detecting more cases on a daily basis, and I'd like to thank all of those people who are coming forward for testing to sexual health clinics, to the general practitioners and emergency departments. We are finding cases that have no identified contact with an individual from West Africa, which is what we've seen previously in this country. The community transmission is largely centered in urban areas, and we are predominantly seeing it in individuals who self-identify as gay or bisexual or other men who have sex with men. That's because of the frequent close contacts they may have. Now, despite the fact that there are only currently at least 108 confirmed cases of monkeypox thus far, well, it looks like the governments of the world have gone on high alert. For instance, Belgium has already instituted a mandatory 21-day monkeypox quarantine for anyone who has contracted the virus. This came after they found only four confirmed cases of the virus within the borders of their nation. And here in America, well, the first confirmed case was in Massachusetts, followed by right here in New York City, and now it looks like there's another confirmed case over in the state of Florida. This led Joe Biden to weigh in on the monkeypox situation here in America, saying this, quote, they haven't told me the level of exposure yet, but it is something that everybody should be concerned about. We're working on it hard to figure out what we do and what vaccine may be available. But it is a concern in the sense that if it were to spread, it would be consequential. And indeed, it looks like the Biden administration has a potential solution to both this health crisis as well as whatever other health crisis might be on the horizon. And that solution involves giving more power as well as more authority to the World Health Organization, otherwise known as the WHO. Specifically, just last week, the Biden administration proposed several amendments to be adopted by, by the WHO, which would grant the organization unilateral authority to declare a public health emergency in any nation in the entire world based on whatever evidence they may choose, which might sound like hyperbole, but it's not. Specifically, up on screen, you will see a letter that was written by Lois Pace, who is the Assistant Secretary for Global Affairs in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And this letter, which I also have in my hand, well, it was addressed to the WHO leadership, and here is part of what the opening statement said, quote, The United States led an inclusive and transparent process to develop this decision as we are mindful that updating and modernizing the IHR, which, which stands for the International Health Regulations, are critical to ensuring the world is better prepared for and can respond to the next pandemic. And then right below that opening statement, it goes on to list a slew of amendment changes that the Biden administration is recommending that the WHO adopt in their regulations, three of which I believe are worth highlighting. The First Amendment would remove an existing requirement in Section 9 that the WHO, quote, consult with and seek to obtain verification from officials in a nation in which a health crisis is suspected before making any public declaration. That same amendment also provides that, quote, WHO may take into account reports from sources other than notifications or consultations from the nation with the suspected problem, meaning in plain English that this would allow the WHO to issue a health emergency in a given nation regardless of what that nation's own elected government says. Secondly, the Second Amendment change is that the Biden administration is proposing a change to Section 5, which would direct the WHO to establish, quote, early warning criteria for assessing and progressively updating the national, regional, or global risk posed by an event of unknown causes or sources, which then ties in neatly to the third point, which is that the Biden administration is proposing an amendment to Section 10, which would require that the WHO, in the event that a nation with a suspected problem doesn't cooperate within 48 hours, 
shall, quote, when justified by the magnitude of the public health risk, immediately share with other nations the information available to it. And this is where things get a little bit, you can say, odd. Because these proposed amendments to the WHO, they appear to parallel very, very closely certain references that were made in a fact sheet that the Biden administration released as a part of their 2023 federal budget proposal. Here are what the relevant references say. And again, this is from the official uh, fact sheet from the federal government regarding the 2023 federal budget. Quote, the Biden administration, in order to support global threat detection innovations through a globally connected network of public health surveillance systems that optimizes disease prevention and health promotion as we strengthen surveillance initiatives to provide necessary actionable data before, during, and after a pandemic. The budget includes $2.47 billion in mandatory funding for the CDC to include enhancements to domestic sentinel surveillance programs, expansion of both domestic and global wastewater surveillance, and investments in global genomic surveillance approaches as well as global respiratory disease surveillance platforms. And just for your reference, when they make mention of the respiratory surveillance platforms, that includes things like video cameras that alert authorities when members of the public are seen coughing, sneezing, or otherwise acting in a way that might indicate that they have an infectious disease. That is quite literally exactly the same type of equipment that is currently being utilized in China. And it looks like the Biden administration is pushing for its adoption, not only here at home domestically, but also globally. And that if the WHO accepts these proposed amendments from the Biden administration, well, then the U.S. global biometric surveillance, which is outlined in this fact sheet, can be used to justify declaring a health emergency in another country that we happen to be monitoring. It's kind of amazing how this all fits together. And so if we circle back to Switzerland, at this very moment, if you take a short four and a half hour car ride from the World Economic Forum meeting, well, you get to the place where the World Health Organization is having their global meeting right now, wherein, among several other things, they will be voting on whether or not to adopt the Biden administration's amendments. And based on their decision, well, it might very well determine the future of how all these global pandemics play out, both monkeypox and whatever comes next. If you'd like to go deeper into anything that we discussed in today's episode between the World Health Organization, the monkeypox, the World Economic Forum, and so on, all those links will be down there in the description box below this video for you to check out. And all I ask in return is that you take a super quick moment to smash, smash, smash that like button for the YouTube algorithm. And now let's... Sorry. Okay. So now you have a different perspective, a more honest one. And just keep... Here's another thought, and I'd like to see if anyone's calling in. Uh, to share your thoughts on why we are an over-medicated society and what we can do about it. But how is it that we keep supporting people, listening to people who have a long history of being wrong? Now, whether they were wrong with intent or wrong by accident or just not aware, they were still wrong, and the consequences hurt other people. And yet time and again, these same people, as if they didn't have a single negative thing in their background, come on the air and they give more misinformation. That's what we're seeing. Massa from Queens is on the air, so let's say hello. Hi, Massa. Hi. Well, Your I turn. believe that it's brainwashing, and uh, it, it relates, even from World War II, how they brainwash people, what they're doing with the children, uh, Israeli children and children in this country, and I believe that people think they, they, they're making their, um, even though they may see a commercial on TV that shows uh, this great medicine, 
I believe they're making their decision out of fear once they get to the doctor. And in my experience, my limited experience, I have communicated with people taking like seven different drugs. I said, don't you, the doctors don't know the contraindications between them. And these people are having many side effects. I do know of one uh, person that took, went off medic meds on, on his own for a while. So not all of them, but, and wasn't shaky anymore, was able to walk. But I believe basically it's a limitation of our spirituality and intuition, how we, how the culture brings us more away from our intrinsic knowing. So we, our decision making process and our realization of what is truth and untruth. I appreciate your input. Let's just focus for a moment on one aspect of what you said. In the United States, we believe that we give a pretty good education, and historically it has been a fair education, but it's also been laced with a lot of propaganda. Those in power have dictated the curriculums, the textbooks, they create them, and the teachers, more often than not, dutifully, instead of doing their own homework, follow that they've been given the best possible information to share with the student. And then one day we wake up and we see a movie, and and the Calvary always right, the Indians are always wrong. How did that happen? Well, that's indoctrination, but subtly. Now, you go to a madras, which is a, a school for, more than not, young boys in, in, uh, in any of the um, countries that are predominantly Muslim. And what kind of information are they, are they taught? Is it to respect other people's lives? Is it to respect other people's values, even though they might be completely different than your own? Well, you'd have to go to a madras to see, but a lot of madrases were challenged because they were teaching to hate the other, and the other was the Americans or other people who were not of their faith. Not all, by any means, but these are the more radical ones. Now go to almost any school in Israel and ask, why do you believe that this land was your land, and you have a right to it after all these years, these millennia have passed. And they will all pretty much give you the same answer because they've been encouraged to believe this early on. Now, they may believe this, but is it the truth? Again, all of us are susceptible to programming. As I mentioned earlier, if you're a doctor going through medical school, you are not rewarded for challenging the existing paradigms. You would be excluded. You wouldn't get through medical school if you did. It's all about you're given information, regurgitate it back, show competence in what you do, and then finally after residency and internship, a lot of suffering, a lot of privations, a lot of sacrifices, a lot of debt, you end up becoming a doctor. Are you free then to treat a patient as you see best? Yes and no. One day... When I was up at the Fertiler Farm in the middle of summer, this gentleman came up and he said, uh, I tracked you down, I need to talk to you. I said, about what? He said, my name is Dr. Robert Vance. I, I'm a physician, board certified physician out in uh, Utah, and uh, I've got problems. They're going after my medical license, looks like they're gonna get it. And a couple other doctors who share common values, like we believe the chelation therapy 
is really important in helping get the heavy metals out of a patient's body. And we believe in a change of diet. And I said, so? And he said, well, we can't do that. The state medical boards are coming against us. And so he said, can I help him? Because he knew I'd help get Dr. James Privatera off a chain gang in California because the state of California, at that time, the most draconian and fascistic medical mm-hmm. state in America, as far as its board, said you cannot treat a patient unless it's with current uh, accepted scientific standards. But who decides what is a scientific standard? The state boards do. And who controls the state board? The American Medical Association. And these are people you would never know, but they have biases. So anyone in the state of California, including um, Dr. Privatera, who used natural techniques, they didn't disparage any orthodox techniques. In fact, he was... He said, get your surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation, then come to me and I'll help you rebuild your health. And that's what he did. So when over 200 patients turned up at court to try to say, this man helped us, it was inadmissible. When the jury felt enormous compassion for the doctor, he had not done nothing wrong. He had hurt no one. There was not a single complaint from a patient. He had helped patients. Didn't matter. The judge was very specific. You must, you must not allow any of this to come into your mind. You must find him innocent or guilty upon a single issue. Did he use current, scientific, acceptable standards? If he did not, then he committed fraud. If he committed fraud, then you must find him guilty. And they had to. And the jury later said, we didn't want to find him guilty. But they did. And across America, every single, no exception, because I knew them all, every single doctor using anything that was considered alternative um, or complementary was singled out by state medical boards and gone after with a passion. And uh, so, if you understand that, then you understand how they control the science. Therefore, they control the information of what is legitimate. Therefore, if you challenge them, you're dispersing disinformation. And therefore, you're committing fraud. Now, they've done it with COVID. They've done it with 100,000 doctors. Anyone who signed the Great Burlington Declaration saying the pandemic and the quarantining was wrong, oh, they went after them. The leaders of this, they pillared all of them. They've lost their medical, uh, uh, let's say, uh, certifications, and uh, they've lost their uh, positions in the hospitals. Has anyone apologized? Not a single person. Has the media apologized for being wrong and promoting disinformation, which has led to Genocide. The answer is not a single person has apologized. Do they continue to say that children should be vaccinated? Yes. Is there a single scientific study in the world that says that children are more susceptible to the COVID infection of dying than they are from a vaccine and dying? And the answer is children are not susceptible. So why give it to them? Because it's profit. Well, well, does your doctor have the right to say no? No, your doctor does not have the right to say no. And how many doctors have the courage to stand up and go on national boycott to say, we want to practice medicine the way we believe is best for our patients? None. So you're trusting a doctor to do what is in your best interest, which they may or may not do, but they don't have the courage to go against the medical cartels? No. Against the government bureaucracies, the totally corrupt CDC and FDA? No. I see. So you're going to trust someone unequivocally with your life and your children's life, your baby's life, because those in power 
and people behind the power. Who actually owns Big Pharma? BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street. So why don't we ever have a single expose on 60 Minutes 2020 PBS of these people? Because these are the most powerful people in the world. I see. So at the bottom of this chain of hierarchical order is the nurse, then the doctor, a pharmacist, and are they willing to look for the truth and then we find it, protest on it? No. Thank you all for listening, and have a nice day.